You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Join our voices to the thousands and thousands and thousands of voices declaring you are holy, holy, holy. By your Spirit, would you bring to fullness what we sang, that we would indeed love you with our whole heart and our mind and our soul and our strength. That you'd receive the praise that you deserve from your people and that in your kindness you'd work in us that we might bring you great glory and that we might from you receive great and overwhelming joy. Teach us now as we come to your word. Let our worship continue, please. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. We are continuing in Luke's gospel. Um, So go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 22. Um, If you need a Bible to follow along, some of our folks from our strike team will be coming around, can get you a Bible, you can... Uh, follow along, and if you do not have a Bible, please take this one home with you. Um, As you're finding your way to Luke 22, I want to highlight something I read this week that I thought was fascinating to say the least, and I think maybe fits for where we're going. Uh, I I read about a survey of Americans uh, from 2021 that asked a, a series of questions related to how confident people were in their ability to beat a wild animal in a fight, hand-to-hand or wing-to-paw, depending on the animal. Like, how, how confident were, were people one-to-one against a variety of animals? Here's some of the results. Maybe you'll find these fascinating. Trust me, there's a point. 72% of those surveyed think that they could beat a rat in a fight. Now, at first, I thought that's pretty low. But then I remembered there are rats bigger than what we see around here. So maybe, maybe 72 is a good number. 61% said they were confident they could win a fight against a goose. They get mean, so I get that. 49% believe they could win a fight against a medium-sized dog. 30% think they could win a fight against an eagle. Hashtag America. 14% said they could win a fight against a kangaroo. Even that might be a little optimistic. Here's where it gets really, really interesting. 8% of people who took this survey think they could win a fight against a gorilla, an elephant, or a lion. Those were all 8%. And a whopping 6% of people were confident they could win a fight against a grizzly bear. Now, I understand the confidence against rats. It makes sense that as a number... That, that number would get smaller as the animal gets bigger. All of that makes sense. But I think that the 8% who think they could beat a gorilla or an elephant or a lion and the 6% who believe they could beat a, a grizzly bear in a fight are just pure delusional. I mean, unless your name is Chuck Norris, you're going to lose that fight. And if you don't know who Chuck Norris is, find someone who's in Gen X. They will point you to the right place on the internet to find all the pertinent information about the hero that is Chuck Norris. Right? 
And, and here's what's funny about this and why I bring this up. I think most of the, because I think most of it's false confidence, right? If you really think you could beat a gorilla in a fight, you're, you are delusional. It's a false sense of, of confidence. But I think this comes from either it's bound up in either ignorance, like they've never really seen a gorilla up close, or it's just straight pride. It's just like some kind of bizarre arrogance. And I'm going to argue that most of the time, the pride that wells up in us is really just a shell. It's a cover for cowardice that lies underneath. It's bluster that's really just covering for like deep fear. A lot of times, our pride. There's a great quote from uh, the 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon. He says this, Cowardice treads upon the heels of boasting. He thinks that he can fight the world. He that thinks that he can fight the world will be the first man to run away. In the face of a grizzly bear, the one who says, I could win that fight, is probably at the front of the pack running the other direction, right? Now, in our passage today, the reason I bring up this odd survey about fighting wild animals, don't fight wild animals, by the way, but the reason I bring this up is in our passage in Luke today, three different things happen. Three different people or groups come and address Jesus in one fashion or another. Three different things happen. And I'm going to suggest that all three of the things that happen in our short passage are motivated by cowardice. And Jesus responds to all three with a courageous, spirit-filled response. So let's read our passage, and, and then we'll get into it, and maybe it'll make sense. Luke chapter 22, we're going to read verses 47 through verse 53. I invite you to follow along. It'll be on the screen as well. Luke 22, starting in verse 47. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. While he, Jesus, was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to kiss to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around saw him, saw, excuse me, saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is God's holy word for us this morning. I said it, and I, I, I think it's an apt description. What is on display in our passage are what I'm calling three acts of cowardice. And what we see in response to them are three courageous responses of Jesus. Each act seems confident and seems self-assured, but underneath, I think they're driven by fear. And I, and I hope that this will help kind of put this in context for us as well. Rather than just looking at the narrative and what happened here, that we can take a little something away from it, specifically maybe do a little self-reflection, and to ask ourselves, where are the places where we are held captive or motivated by fear? And what we see here in Luke is that Jesus confronts cowardice, he confronts fear, and carves a path for a life of courageous faith. Jesus confronts cowardice and carves a path for a life of courageous faith. So at its most basic, our text today, the big idea, if you will, is 
Cowardice versus courage. At the top of the, the fight card, here's the main event. Cowardice versus courage. Three acts of cowardice and three courageous responses from our Lord. Look with me at the first one. It's where we see deception versus directness. Verses 47 and 48. Let me read it again. While Jesus was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading this crowd. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Jesus said it in Matthew 26. He said it in Mark 14. It's recorded in John 13. And just a little earlier here in Luke 22, we already read it. Judas, the one that Jesus said was going to betray him, the one who had plotted and planned to turn Jesus over to the authorities, right here he does the unthinkable. He leads this crowd of men, soldiers, religious officials, both Jews and Romans. He leads them right to where Jesus is, and he greets Jesus with a kiss. Now, the context here of this kind of embrace, this kind of kiss, it's a sign of affection and closeness. There's, a, there's an intimacy, a relational closeness here that Judas has with Jesus, and he's taking advantage of it. And that's what makes Judas' betrayal even worse. It'd be one thing if Judas leads this crowd, and then he kind of stops in the distance and he goes, yeah, that guy there in the middle with the blue sash, he's your guy. You guys can go take care of it now. But Judas doesn't do that. He leads them all the way up to Jesus. And the sign to the authorities of the one that they're supposed to arrest, Judas says, is the one whom I kiss, the one whom I embrace. And so Judas goes and he embraces Jesus and he kisses him on the cheek. And that's the indication he's the one the soldiers are to take into custody. And so I think Judas here, I think no matter his motivations, it seems he's trying to be clever a little, right? They're, they're, he knows where they're going to be. Luke tells us they're in a familiar place, so they've been here before. Likely they'd come to this same spot, this same little garden outside of the city to pray after a long day of ministering to needy people. And from what we read before, the other disciples really had no clue exactly who it was. If you remember in the upper room, he's like, one of you will betray me, and they all look at each other like, is it me? Is it you? Who's going to do this? And so all Judas has to do is kind of pretend like everything's normal and just do the normal thing and he'll collect his pay, his ransom, and he won't have to necessarily risk that much maybe. So he takes this good thing, this embrace, this sign of closeness and uses it in a bad way. Judas hides behind the familiar in order to deceive to gain for himself. I mean, it's very possible, although Luke describes it as the crowd came and followed Judas, but it's very possible that he could even claim some plausible deniability. Right? Judas shows up and he's like, I don't know where this crowd came from. They must have just followed me. Hey, Jesus, how are you? We don't really know. It was just that the, this was a perfect opportunity here at night, in the dark, outside the city where there were no crowds. And so there's kind of two layers to this betrayal that are cowardly for Judas. One, it's just the act itself is, is cowardly, right? Not just the act itself, but also the way in which Judas does it. So the act itself is the act of a coward. Like if Judas was really disappointed over the last three years of ministry with Jesus, he was really disappointed that Jesus isn't who he said he was. He's not really being the revolutionary that we all hoped 
We're not really gaining a whole lot of ground here against the Romans. I'm out. Judas weeks ago could have said, this is not for me. I don't want to follow you anymore. I'm done. But he doesn't do that. If he thought that the other disciples were maybe just being duped by Jesus, that he was smarter than them, he sees it, they don't see it, he could have pulled Peter aside and said, hey, Peter, this is not, do you think this is working out? He keeps talking about dying. We're not, what's going on here? Let's, 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 let's go. But he didn't do that either. Instead, Judas says nothing, but underhandedly sneaks away to make a plan to get rid of Jesus by conspiring with those who hated him. There's a reason why the, even the whole idea of, of a Judas kiss, it's a phrase that is still lingers, not as much today, but still lingers in our cultural vernacular. It's an ultimate sign of betrayal. It's, it's treason, right? There's a reason, too, historically, why acts of betrayal, acts of treason are treated with such high response, right? If you, if you commit treason against a a government or a king, typically the response is very strong. Death, usually. Right? And and betrayal at a personal level is one of the most destructive forces in human relationships. If you have felt betrayed by someone close to you, you know what I'm talking about. Trust has just been leveled. And you're like, I don't even know where to go from here. Because betrayal by its nature is, is underhanded. It stays in the dark. It stays in the, in the shadows. It's always hiding. It's always covering up something in order to deceive. It's cowardly. It's cowardly. It's deceptive. Because all betrayal resides in the fear of being discovered, being caught. Now, are there good people who use subterfuge to like, you think of like, you know, hiding Jews in the attic in Germany to keep them from a death squad. Are they using subterfuge? Are they, are they fibbing, using deception? Sure. Are there spies? You know, I mean, we wouldn't have good spy novels and spy movies if they weren't like pretending to be something that they weren't only to be like, ha ha, got you. You didn't know. Now I'm the good guy, right? Like you wouldn't, we wouldn't know that. So, so, so yes, but even in those cases, the the, the deception is used in order to get a different outcome than what the others want. And so here, Judas uses deception. No matter his core motivations, he's willing to sell out Jesus for his own personal gain. And so he uses a kiss to betray his friend, turning a sign of friendship into a sign of betrayal. But Jesus doesn't let that slide. Look what he says. He confronts Judas directly. Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Rhetorical question that cuts right to the heart. He looks Judas square in the face and he's like, I know what you're doing. And I'm going to tell you and everyone who can hear what I'm saying exactly what you are doing. Jesus doesn't let him slide. Doesn't let him hide behind this little show of friendship, this this little kiss on the cheek. But with one question, Jesus confronts Judas to his face, and he calls him a betrayer. Would you betray me, the Son of Man, with a kiss? So think about it. The disciples who, like five seconds ago, were not sure how this deception was going to happen. Who is it? Immediately are told, by the way, it's Judas, and here it's happening. One of you would betray me, Jesus is essentially saying, and here he is. 
And in this, I think Jesus is showing us something. He doesn't let the betrayal remain hidden so that Judas can continue to profit from his deception. He directly confronts what Judas is trying to do. Cowardice works betrayal behind the scenes, but courage confronts directly. There's a contrast here. And notice the distinction. Betrayal is always hidden and underhanded, but Jesus never hides. Jesus deals directly. We'll see a variation of this at the end too, but this is where we find a heart check for us. We can't just leave it here in the hands of Judas and Jesus. Where and when are you prone to deceive both yourself and others? Sometimes it's hard to know like our own motivations in that. So so here's a follow-up question or two to maybe help us answer that question. Do you tend to work up front, kind of in, in, in plain view? Or do you tend to try to like manage or manipulate a situation behind the scenes? Do, do you work hard to avoid something that's difficult, and so you work angles to avoid a difficult situation or a difficult conversation? Or do you kind of work angles so you don't have to fully admit something that would show that you're weak or needy or inadequate in something? Or are you willing to shoot straight? These are self-eval questions, right? When you, do the, when you do the is it worth it math, right? You have a situation in front of you and you're trying to figure out how to respond or what to do and you start doing the math in your head of like, is this worth it? Is this conversation worth it? Is this decision worth it? Should I say something? Should I not? When you do the is it worth it math, do you tend to look out for yourself at all cost, or is there a willingness in you to be honest even if it does cost you something? Judas's betrayal was cowardice on display. That's the first act motivated by fear we see in our passage, deception versus directness. Second one, we see in the disciples, one of the disciples in particular, look at verse 49, we see reaction that comes from cowardice and fear. Let me read it again. When those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? One of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this, and he touched his ear and healed him. The second operation of cowardice here is reactionary versus Jesus' courageous, resolute response. Now, I don't know if you know this, but we live in a culture that is remarkably reactionary. We thrive culturally on outrage and reaction. I think it's pretty self-evident, but let me just make the case for you here. Our information stream is a non-stop fire hose of events and outrages and offenses. Everything is unprecedented now. Everything is. I hate that word and how, what it's become in the last five years, right? Everything, every political maneuvering is a threat to democracy, apparently. Every one of them in every political direction. Everything is an emergency. And you and I, culturally, apparently, must have an opinion or must have feelings about everything that's happening in every part of the world. Because if we don't, I don't know, but something bad will happen, right? I don't think I'm barking up the wrong tree here, right? So, to keep up, we frantically become experts in things like public health and geopolitics. 
things that we know really nothing about, while all the time somehow curious in the back of our minds, whether we say we are or not, curious about which global superstar is dating which athlete, right? Like, we, we care, but we don't care, and we for sure say we don't care, but yet somehow we still know, and we have an opinion. And so in order to keep pace with the culture, we, we actually cycle through temporary profile frames. We post other people's thoughts and, and tweets, and, or whatever it's called now, and articles about stuff that we know very little about, and when we do those things, we feel like we're doing something because if we, if we don't have an opinion or we don't post a quote on the right day or the right time, we're failing to properly engage the moment somehow and how dare we not add our voice to the thousands of other voices of minimally informed people just like us, right? I'm sorry if I went a little hard at that, but I think that's a reality in which we live. I think we're swimming in and I think some of us feel like we're just drowning in a remarkably reactionary culture. Now, hear me clearly, I'm not saying that we shouldn't care about injustice in the world. We absolutely should. We should hate the things that God hates. And we can and should weep with those who weep. But just hear me, we are not designed to carry around and have opinions about everything that happens in every place around the globe at all times. We are not wired for that. But in the time and place in which we live, Information is constant, and so it's on all the time. And if we try to take it all in and respond to all of it, we end up here reacting to everything big and small. So our culture, the context in which we live and swim in, is a very reactionary culture. And I don't think it's just modern culture. I think partly it's a flaw that comes through sin in our human nature. Proverbs says this way. Proverbs 18.2 says, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Proverbs 18 figured it out. Peter's living in it, which we'll talk about here in a second. I actually have this verse on a post-it on my desk to remind me. And I think that's at least part of what's happening here in Luke 22. Jesus' disciples are watching all this happen, right? It's happening in real time. Judas shows up. There's a crowd of people. Jesus says, you know, you're going to betray me. Are you going to betray me with a kiss? They see the crowd. They see the soldiers. Can you picture them for a second? I mean, just put yourself just in the place right here with Peter. Like he looks at John and he goes, is it happening right now? Is it? It's going down? It's going down now? And Luke doesn't tell us this, but John does. Luke just says, and, and one of them drew a sword. John 18 says, it was Peter. John seems particularly hard on Peter, but that's another topic. We'll talk about that later. John 18, verses 10 and 11. You can turn there if you want. It'll be on the screen. John writes this. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So, so Peter apparently, has one of the two swords that the disciples said, hey, you know, what are, are two swords enough? And Jesus says, yes, that's enough. Peter has one of them, and he thinks in this moment, well, this must be the time to use it. They're going to arrest Jesus. So he pulls out his sword and swings it at one of the servants of the high priest who was there. And this is kind of an aside, but I think it's interesting that Peter lands on the ear. One of two things is accurate here. Either Peter's a terrible swordsman, which is probably true because he's a fisherman, so he's like flailing wildly with it. It's probably not a, like a giant sword. It's 
probably a smaller one. Or, so either he's just terrible with the sword, likely, or he's going for the headshot. Also likely. And so he takes a swipe at the servant who maybe dodges, maybe Peter's a bad shot, whatever. He only clips his right ear. So either Peter's terrible with the sword, very possible, and or he's going for the head. So, I mean, talk about like zero to 60, right? Like, hey, we should fight. I'm going to kill this guy. Is kind of how it looks. Jesus says, none of this. None of this, Luke twenty two fifty one. 51. No more of this. And he touches the ear of the servant and heals him. Luke says, I love the way Luke describes that. And here's why this is important. I think it's clear here, both in Luke's account and John's, Peter's not thinking about like a reasoned response, like, gee, what should we do next? He just reacts. He has no perspective. He just responds, knee-jerk. But Jesus says, whoa, 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 Peter, you're missing some very important perspective here. John 18, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? It's essentially Jesus saying, Peter, if you fight in this way, you're actually keeping me from being arrested. And if you keep me from being arrested, you're actually interfering with the will of God. You need some perspective here, Peter. Don't do what you think you need to do now to defend me or fight off this crowd of people because it's the Father's will that I drink this cup. And as we'll just see in a minute, uh, when we get to the last part, Jesus is almost telling them too, like, hey, they came with an army. Don't fight them. Don't give them any reason to think they did the right thing by coming at us with clubs and swords. Don't prove it. Don't prove them right by fighting them. Instead, put your sword down and let their cowardice, which we'll talk about in a second, also be on full display. Like they came with a bunch of soldiers for a teacher and his lowly disciples. Who do they think that they are? right? Fear and cowardice, here's the big uh, point here, fear and cowardice only reacts. It's pure reactionary, but courage is resolute. That's the contrast to reactionary is being resolute. Courage displayed by our Lord here is anchored to something. In this case, it's anchored to a vision, values, to to a mission, Jesus has a mission, and he is resolute. He is focused on accomplishing that mission. And his unwavering pursuit of that mission puts everything else in a proper perspective. So even this unjust and unthinkable betrayal is being used by the Father to move Jesus toward the accomplishment of his mission. Even in this. Now, All the way back in Luke chapter 9, Jesus has this interaction with a village, a Samaritan village. He's in the vicinity, but the village rejects him because Jesus won't stay with them and minister to them. And Luke tells us why. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 9 that Jesus' face was set on Jerusalem. Jesus is resolute. Yes, there's ministry to be done here. Yes, there are people who are still in need of healing But my mission, Jesus is saying, is to go to Jerusalem because in Jerusalem there's a cross and I'm going to need to go there. So his face was set. Everything else is filtered through that perspective. Jesus has it. Peter doesn't yet have it, clearly. He will eventually. 
but he doesn't yet. I was at a, a, pan, a conference with a handful of other pastors uh, a number of years ago, and one of the keynotes is he is encouraging a bunch of uh, guys in ministry. He, he quoted a, a guy, like a leadership guy named Peter Block, who I'm not even sure if he's a believer, but, but the quote was helpful. He said, vision is not a roadmap, but a compass. And here's, why, here's how it applies. A roadmap says these are the exact distances and turns that we need to take to get to a destination. If you have lunch plans this afternoon, you're not exactly sure how to get there or what's the fastest route to take, you open up your phone, you open up your favorite app that gives you map directions, you put in the address, and it'll tell you like, oh, it's 15 minutes if you go down Maine, it's 16 if you go this way, but it's a little more scenic, you know, around the park, right? Tells you how to get there, how many miles it'll take, how long it'll take. That's what a map does. But a compass doesn't do that. A compass says, I'm heading in this direction. The path might twist and turn, the roads might be paved, they might be dirt. But no matter the terrain, I know where I'm going because I know which way is north. This is north, by the way, if you're curious. So from my tiny spot on the globe, I know where I'm going, even if I don't know what every step's going to look like, what the path exactly looks like, but I know where we're headed. So, so we make maps to go from point A to point B, but each of those paths are moving us toward the grand vision, the end goal. Does that make sense? Jesus has a compass here. His mission is clear. Even if to Peter and the others it looks like this is a terrible, terrible detour. So let me just, let's do a little uncomfortable self-reflection. I mean, we're already here, right? Where do you tend to be reactionary? Where do you feel overwhelmed? Because maybe you do. Maybe you do like me. The flood of outrage and information that is available to us makes us feel overwhelmed. Maybe that's you. Do you feel the need in that to respond to everything all the time? To repost, to change your profile picture for some situation outside of you that is far removed from you? Because maybe you don't want to be seen as someone who didn't do something? I once got an email here at the church asking why there was nothing on our church's Facebook page or social media about something that was happening in the world. Hey, I didn't see you guys post anything about that. Everyone's saying something. And I gently, I think graciously, said, thanks. We're not going to post about that. Have a good day. <laughs> or something along those lines. Now, now, hear me. It's not, again, like the Bible doesn't speak to all sorts of things. It absolutely does. God's Word has clear things to say about injustice and tragedy and war and all of that. And you and I are not able, nor do we need to react the same to everything that comes at us. In fact, if you and I tend to try to respond to everything all the time, it's possible that you and I will not have the energy and the focus needed to engage and care about the things that are closest to us, the things that we have actually more responsibility for in our own communities, in our own families, or maybe in our own souls. So, so let me just encourage you that if you do find yourself like doom scrolling, you know what I'm talking about, just story after story or distraction after distraction, you have permission to turn off the phone. Put it down. You have permission to delete the app. That's just practical, like, maybe you need to hear that today. I don't know. 
Then let me ask the question so that you can ask the question, what is actually most important? Not that other things aren't important at all, because they are, but what is most important for you right now? How has God made you? And to what has He called you? And to let your identity in Christ and the gospel be your aim, your compass, if you will. So then you can say that the steps that I choose to walk today, the way I'm going to invest my energy and expend it today, I want it to be in service to that end, that vision. So no matter what mountains or valleys I walk through, I know where I'm headed. I think that courageous resolve is on display in the Lord Jesus here, and I believe that by His Holy Spirit, Jesus empowers us to walk in who we are in Christ, not crippled by fear, not cowering, but resolutely joining Jesus on his mission exactly where he's planted us. Not reactionary, but resolute. One more? We've got time for one more? Doesn't matter, you're here anyway. Verse 52, the third thing that happens. Jesus says to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him. So, so here Jesus turns his attention. Judas, Peter, and now to these religious leaders. He's not focused on the Roman soldiers who were present. He's, he's not focused on the government officials, the ones who will actually put him to death. He looks at the chief priests of the people of Israel and he says this, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? This is overkill, guys. Overkill. It's like you rolled out a SWAT team because some 12-year-old had an illegal lemonade stand. Like, you brought the rain. Really, guys? It, it kind of seems like a weird flex, doesn't it? Jesus is here in, a, in the garden, like in this like, secluded, quiet place. There's no crowds. It's the middle of the night. And so, again, we're not talking street lights here. So it's dark. He's alone with his disciples. And they bring a mob probably with pitchforks and torches, you know what I mean? Like clubs and swords. It's the guy who thinks he can beat up a grizzly bear and he tells everyone, I can beat up a grizzly bear. It's just pride. It's, it's cowardice. Jesus says, have you come out against a robber as a robber with swords and clubs? Verse 53, Jesus continues, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour the power and the power of darkness. This is the third example of cowardness. It's a, it's a double-mindedness is the cowardice of these religious leaders. Double-mindedness. To be double-minded is to be a hypocrite. Jesus says, you could have arrested me a hundred times before tonight. You had so many opportunities. I stood within feet of you in the temple day after day. Because of your cowardice, though, you decide to come at me under cover of darkness, away from the crowds of people who were following me with an extremely overpowered brute squad. You guys are cowards and you're hypocrites. In fact, throughout his gospel, Luke tells us on more than one occasion that the chief priests and the scribes were afraid to arrest Jesus because of how the crowds might react, because they're 
prestige, their influence, their position, how other people viewed them would be threatened. And so the hypocrites accused Jesus of being a lawbreaker. They accused Jesus of, of being a sinner because he has meals with sinners. They accused Jesus of being unclean because he touches and heals those who are diseased. So Jesus just calls them out for being cowardly and hiding behind decorum, hiding behind the capital L law while be themselves being unclean and lawbreakers themselves and operating in the shadows rather than in the light of day. There's a parallel Jesus gives in Luke chapter 16. He's talking about money, but here's what Jesus says in Luke 16. He says, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. Jesus says, you cannot serve both God and money, Luke 16, 13. And I don't want to make too big of a stretch here, but I don't think this only applies to money. Jesus' instruction that you cannot serve two masters is absolutely in play here. These religious leaders that Jesus is talking to are trying to outwardly serve God. That's their position. That's their title. That's who they're known to be. But inwardly, they're just serving themselves. They want to hold their religious position and they want to hold on to the love and approval of the crowds. And they've lived their lives with this double-minded hypocrisy and it's led them to be underhanded and sneaky and deceptive. So much so that they can't even confront Jesus to his face. Even when they do confront him, it's like we're going to ask him a question and maybe he'll trip himself up so we can kind of snare him. But they don't actually address him. They need to scheme and plan. In contrast to that, Jesus has done every minute of his ministry out in the open. I mean, aside from the fact that in the middle of the night when all the crowds go home, they're just not around, but everything Jesus has done and said in his public ministry has been on full display. He's preached boldly, even in hostile company. He turned over tables in the middle of the temple courts, In the middle of the day, he has publicly eaten with sinners and befriended tax collectors and prostitutes. He makes no bones about touching the sick and the diseased to heal them. He's done all of that in the sight of all and without shame. This is courage by our Lord in contrast to cowardice. Because the truth is not afraid of the light. And Jesus, who is the truth, has lived his life on display for all to see. That's the difference. That's the contrast. Double-mindedness and hypocrisy is a sign, or I would argue a fruit, of fear and cowardice, where clear and honest truth on public display is an exercise in courage. You see the distinction? So I think we need to hear this too, because here's the reality. If we're honest, we're all hypocrites. (laughs) I love that when someone's like, oh, I I could never be a a Christian because Christians are hypocrites. And I'm like, yes, we are. Welcome. We are in need of grace. And Jesus offers it freely. Would you like to come find out more about what I'm talking about? Right? We're all hypocrites to some extent. Right? This is the reality of the battle against the flesh. It's the putting off of the old and putting on the new. So let me ask you, not if, but maybe a little more direct, 
where does your hypocrisy show itself? Where is the old still fighting? Where you say one thing, but you do another. Or you criticize others for the very things that you struggle with. Where does your hypocrisy show itself? Or this, where are you double-minded? Like, honestly, are there other masters in your life that demand your worship and your devotion? Where do you spend your time and your talent and your treasure? Because if you trace that line of where you spend your time and your talent and your treasure, if you trace that line, at the end of that line, you will find what you really worship. Do you care more about what others think of you than you do the truth? And so you're willing to sacrifice truth for affirmation and approval of others. In the words of Jesus, you can't serve both God and anything else. Double-mindedness versus a public display of honest truth. And so here in Luke 22... Jesus is confronting cowardice with courage. And, and here's where it's good for us. If you're like, oh, that, got, that was very uncomfortable, Jake. You asked us three different series of uncomfortable questions. Thank you very much. Here's why it's, it's good for us. Because I think we need Jesus actually to fight the cowardice that remains. The last thing Jesus says to these men in our, in our passage here, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. The last part of verse 53 but this is your hour and the power of darkness. That but there could look like Jesus is just giving up, like, well, I guess this is just how it is now. But I don't think he's doing that. I think Jesus is making a declarative statement. He's outwardly acknowledging, hey, you belong to the dark, and this is what the dark does. And I understand that. But the light always drives out the dark. John 1. True light has come into the world. And the darkness cannot stand against it. Light always drives out the dark. The light of the gospel, the light of truth, the light of the will of God at work, moving Christ to the cross and then to the tomb and then rising again, that light is going to crush and cripple the power of darkness and the kingdom of Satan and his grip on the world. That is going to happen. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul is speaking about the wickedness that comes from those who don't love God but chase after idols. So he's talking about idolatry, worshiping of other things versus the worship of God. Paul says this, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, these these idolatries, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, because God is just, Paul says, do not become partakers with them, for at one time, Paul says, you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. You see that? You were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So Paul's saying what Jesus is illustrating, that before you have faith in Christ, 
You are darkness, and you are in darkness. Darkness is your home. So Jesus says right here, this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is what darkness does. And the sobering reality for everyone who does not confess Jesus as Lord and Savior is this, that you remain in darkness. But the good news for those in darkness is that Jesus calls us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So we acknowledge our sin and Jesus forgives us and cleanses us and makes us righteous in him. So if you are in Christ, this is now your reality. You were darkness, controlled and governed by fear. But now you are light in the Lord, so walk as children of light. Christ Jesus, the true light, is now your light. Even in our practice of the Lord's Supper, which we'll take together and share in just a few moments, when we take the Lord's Supper together, we are inviting the light of Christ to shine into all the recesses of our hearts and drive out the lingering shadows of sin and darkness and self that remain so that we might continue to experience more and more freedom that is ours as we live under the full light and heat of Christ Jesus. So we don't have to flex or boast or, or cover up, but we can walk in real spiritual courage too, as Paul said, not take part any longer in the unfruitful works of darkness, not give in to fear, not operate out of cowardice, but instead let all that expose, be exposed to the light that we may walk in courage that comes Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, who I referenced earlier, once said this. He said, lambs become lions when the lamb is slain. That's what we're taking, we're remembering when we take communion. Lambs, fearful, cowardly, skittish, become lions, who 8% of the people wrongly think they could fight, become lions when Jesus the Lamb is slain. There's a supernatural courage that is accessible to us now that we are in Christ. So, brothers and sisters, for all the places where you and I might be tempted by or held captive to fear, together let's look at Jesus who confronts and overcomes cowardice and has shown us a path to life and faith and courage in Him. Let's pray. Father, I thank You that it's actually in our most weak that You are strong. So would You forgive us for pretending to not be needy, for deluding ourselves and to the point of even trying to fool others into thinking we are something that we're not. Father, for any of us in this, in this room who, who are still in darkness and maybe are comfortable there, would you, by your Holy Spirit, just shine the light of truth and conviction that would scatter the shadows? Draw us out. Call those in darkness out into the light. Thank you.
that our sin might be exposed to the light of truth, that we might confess, repent, and find forgiveness and grace in Christ. For those of us who follow you, Lord Jesus, we'd, cons- we'd call you our friend and our Lord, and yet there's still shadows and recesses in our hearts that we would more often than not like to keep hidden. Would you be gracious to shine your light of truth there as well? That we might hold fast to the truth of Romans, that there is, no, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that we can confess our sins, believing you are faithful and just to forgive us. Father, make us courageous, not arrogant, not self-assured, but give us humble courage to confess, to love and walk in the truth, to extend grace and show hospitality, to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep, that we might see you continue to work in us and through your church to extend the light of Christ to all the places you've placed us as lights in dark places. Would you give us fresh freedom now as we come to the communion table? Refresh your church. We thank you. We thank you for your grace and mercy. Bless your people as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.